This is Shlomo Swidler, CEO of Orchestratus, on Wednesday, July 2nd, 2014. Hi, this is Shlomo Swidler, CEO of Orchestratus. Welcome to this episode of the OpenStack Israel podcast. On today's episode, my guest is Mark Shuttleworth, founder of Canonical and Space Traveler. How are you doing, Mark? Great, Shlomo. Nice to speak with you. Same here. I saw you last month at the OpenStack Israel event here in June. You gave a fantastic keynote. I was wondering what you thought of the OpenStack Israel community. But it was it was nice to see such a such a good mix of uh, both established companies and startups interested in OpenStack doing work around OpenStack. I thought the event itself was superbly well organized and um, and and the vibe was uh, was exciting. There's uh, there's a ton of interesting stuff happening in Tel Aviv and surrounds, and uh, I think OpenStack is going to play a very meaningful role in all of that. Tell us a bit about what your vision for Canonical and Ubuntu is in the OpenStack world. Well, we see OpenStack as the next phase of Linux. Uh, it's Linux at scale. And Ubuntu has a sort of special place that we've carved out as the professional, commodity, high-scale uh, platform of choice for people you know, doing things uh, that are ambitious or at large scale. So we've seen Ubuntu be very widely adopted in the OpenStack community. The substantial majority of OpenStack deployments today are on Ubuntu. And if you look at the larger deployments, then that's even more true. So we think that our mission is to uh, deliver OpenStack in crisp, clean um, format on a regular cadence to very large production users. Um, and we wrap a service portfolio around that. We're also, I think, really blazing a trail in terms of what people do with OpenStack. So the first mission was make OpenStack easy to install, easy to consume, easy to scale, uh, and do that in a very predictable, reliable way. Um, but I think the next mission is to bring some of the magic that we brought to public cloud environments uh, to OpenStack as, as well. You know, people don't just want to move uh, their existing operations onto the cloud. They want to upgrade their existing operations capabilities. And, uh, and that's a really interesting field. There's a lot of pioneering work being done there, and, and I think that's where most of the the real value and benefits of um, of OpenStack will come. Looking back at your history with Canonical and shepherding Ubuntu, what decisions do you regard as the most influential, assuring the success that you've seen today with Ubuntu's position in, of ubiquity in the cloud world? Well, I think the, the first and most important thing we did was take the cloud very seriously very early on. Um, uh, you know, it, it was um, it was an environment where um, we thought, you know, a disproportionate number of very smart, very interesting people were spending time. And so we put a program of work together to understand what people were doing with Ubuntu on public clouds um, and understand where the points of friction, you know, were in their experience. Um, and it turned out that um, all operating systems had been designed, all enterprise operating systems had been designed to be put on large servers and then left untouched for 10 years. Mm -hmm. and, and there were a set of assumptions baked into those operating systems that just weren't true in a cloud environment where your operating strategy might be completely different. You know, in a cloud environment, you might be creating and destroying resources at, you know, at, at a phenomenal pace. Uh, any individual machine might live you know, an hour or a year, and, and it's difficult to predict up front which is going to behave which way. 
So we needed to make a lot of small changes across all of Ubuntu to, um, to smooth that process and make Ubuntu feel great in cloud environments. We did that about six, seven years ago. And I think that really then made it very easy for people to use Ubuntu on public clouds and, and laid the foundation for the very large um, wave of adoption of Ubuntu in cloud environments by, by you know, governments, uh, corporates, um, and, and startups, which, is, which has been very exciting. Now yes. our focus is, is a little higher up. You know, we, we've, we've made it really easy to get the base machine up and running and predictable, and we have nice programs with all of the big clouds. So if you get Ubuntu on a cloud, it comes with a very strong um, set of assurances around it. You know, it will behave in a predictable way. It will get updates in a very efficient way. It will be optimized for that cloud. The economics will be optimized so that you're not paying extra to, do, you know, to get updates and things like that. Um, but, but what's really interesting now is the way people are going about turning those resources into productive application workloads. Um, and that's still, in many cases, a very cumbersome manual process or requires a lot of from scratch automation um, and we're very interested in, in creating the same sort of patterns of reuse and and sharing you know at, at the application orchestration level that we see um, at the software level inside packages of software and open source and that's where you have juju and charms uh, that's right. It's not limited to Ubuntu, so you know it's very interesting to see other platforms adopting Ubuntu, uh, Juju, um, uh, the CentOS community, the uh, Windows community. Um, so Juju, I think, will spread across multiple platforms. It won't just be an Ubuntu phenomenon, but we're contributing to it because of our interest in easing the ability for anybody, whether they're a large institution or a, a startup to harness those resources and, and, and turn them into really interesting workloads very quickly. When I talk to my customers, enterprises and startups alike, I see lots of use of Chef and Puppet. I don't really see Juju. What, what are your hopes for it and how do you think this will play out? Well, I, th I think that's natural. You know, Chef and Puppet are four, five, six years older than, than Juju. So in, the, you know, in terms of waves of adoption, um, to me, it's perfectly natural that when a new tool comes along, it takes a little while to, to spread. I look at the growth rate of the Juju community itself, and that is very, very strong. So just as we, the work we did with the cloud itself, you know, if you've got a small but very interesting community doing very powerful things, then it's worth paying attention to what they're doing and why they're doing it. So what we saw um, when we were working with those heavy cloud users was that everybody was moving to automate. Um, you know, the automation imperative is very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And the tools that people had available at the time were things like CF Engine, Chef, Puppet, um, Bash, Python, Perl. And so everybody was doing a bit of that. But what was very clear if you looked across many institutions was that there was very little reuse of that work from institution to institution. So two big banks sitting down um, are both essentially writing the same tooling in Chef and in Python and in Puppet and in whatever they use as the other company. And they're re rewriting from scratch stuff that doesn't really make sense for everybody to rewrite from scratch. So the goal with Juju was to, to, was to see whether we could get reuse of that Chef or Puppet work and you know whether we could get it so that you could create some Chef code and pass it around really, really easily to other people who could just reuse it without having to dig into it. 
Um, and uh, that's what Juju does. So you can take a chef recipe or, or puppet scripts and you can put them inside a Juju charm and suddenly you get reuse of that automation in a way that you just can't, you know, with, with only configuration management. So then you might use OpenStack to glue together uh, arbitrary infrastructure, storage, compute, networking, and you would use Juju to glue together bits of applications. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. We, we actually use Juju to glue the parts of OpenStack together. So when, when, you know, when we started the Juju work, it was completely focused on EC2 because that's where we saw the gene pool of innovation being. I remember those days very well. Yeah, other cloud vendors then came along and said, hey, we'd like to have that on our cloud as well, and so ported Juju to their clouds. When we started doing a lot of OpenStack, we were struck by the fact that, you know, OpenStack is just a set of applications spread across a set of machines. And so orchestrating and scaling out OpenStack is not that different to orchestrating and scaling out Hadoop or orchestrating and scaling out any large distributed complex application. And what we were missing, we were missing a cloud layer. We actually could do OpenStack on top of EC2 very quickly because Juju let us do that. But we needed to create a, a cloud-like layer for physical infrastructure. And so that's where MAS Metal as a Service came from. Um, that gives you a kind of cloud-like interface to physical servers, letting you get physical servers on demand. And once you have that, you can orchestrate OpenStack with Juju just as easily as you can orchestrate you know, comp other complex applications on top of a cloud with Juju. Where do you see the trend in containerization taking us? Do you think oh, this will become integrated into OpenStack, sit on top of OpenStack? Yeah, containerization is really, really interesting. It's interesting because you can think of it at two different levels. One is like a hypervisor. You know, inside a container, you can run an entire little machine. Um, mm -hmm. That machine is largely unaware that it's inside a container, just like a virtual machine is largely unaware that it's inside a virtual machine. But you can also containerize just a single process or set of processes, more like an application. And so I think as people dig into containers, they'll realize that it's, it's a little more general than the virtualization sort of revolution or transformation, because you can use containers in more or less specialized ways. And I think we'll see containers of applications being the core primitive for platform as a service, PaaS. And you know, we already see that with a variety of PaaSs built around container technologies, uh, Cloud Foundry, uh, OpenShift, any number of PaaS um, systems are using containers to be very efficient about how they distribute applications and so on. But I think we'll also see containers being used like, like hypervisors, where you, where you get a small, a small machine We'll see that in environments where performance is more important than isolation and where uh, typically you know, the workloads on Linux rather than a, a mixture of Linux and other operating systems. So do you think that we'll start to see the unit of deployment become container plus, say, Juju charms? Uh, I think Juju can glue together things at different levels. So inside Juju today, you can create containers on machines that you're, that you're orchestrating and put workloads into those containers just like as if they were virtual machines. So say I'm orchestrating something across um, you know, 20 virtual machines, and I've got 60 different pieces that I want to orchestrate, you know, a cluster of one thing, a cluster of another thing, and then various other bits and pieces of administrative stuff. Um, 
I can slice up the virtual machines into containers and put some of the workloads into containers, reusing the the VM essentially, reusing the capacity of the VM to share to share it across all of those containers. And Juju will do that today very naturally. So you know when you create an orchestration, your base layer might be physical machines or it might be virtual machines. But on top of that, you can then create virtual machines or containers and orchestrate into them very, very neatly. But I think you'll also see Juju used to orchestrate PASs, which themselves then orchestrate containers for applications. Um, so Juju isn't a PAS, but it can be used very efficiently to, to deploy PAS environments, right? And the PAS environments themselves are doing a certain amount of orchestration. And so Cloud Foundry, for example, or OpenShift, you can think of that as an orchestration framework for, for, for application containers. Um, but it, it only does that thing, whereas Juju is more general. Juju, you know, you can orchestrate uh, anything. There are, there are benefits to both, so we, we see you know, plenty of room for, for uh, both generic orchestration, uh, service orchestration tools like Juju, and also specialized application orchestration, uh, container orchestration, things like Cloud Foundry. So then, in a sense, OpenShift is Red Hat's PaaS offering, and Cloud Foundry comes from uh, Pivotal and VMware. Ubuntu's play in this market is Juju and Metal as a Service, which you don't operate as a service yourselves, but provides the tools for anyone to do so. Right. So Metal as a Service lets you automate your data center, the physical layer of your data center. It gives you your Metal as a service. It's not a service we provide. Right. It's just something you spin up, and then you know you feed it your machines, and then you can on demand, you can allocate those machines to Hadoop, or you can allocate them to OpenStack, or you can allocate them to Ceph, or to Cloud Foundry, or to you know any sort of workload. It's just the physical layer. Um, Juju lets you then um, orchestrate what I would describe as applications which require d deep integration. So if you think of OpenStack, you need lots of parts spread across lots of machines, and they all need to be quite tightly integrated into each other. So Juju does that very, very well. Uh, Cloud Foundry is the same. You know, you've got lots of parts spread across lots of machines, and they all need to be integrated. Each part needs to know about all the other parts. When you when you scale out one of those services, all the other services need to know about that. Juju does that, but beautifully. Um, but then, if you think of your your Cloud Foundry application, uh, that might just be a, a like a Java, a straightforward Java app server talking to a database. Um, it's probably more efficient to have Cloud Foundry scale that out on top of the machines that Juju provided to Cloud Foundry. Um, and so there's room for, for all of these different you know, permutations and combinations. And it's not long before we have um, you know, physical machines with OpenStack orchestrated on them, Cloud Foundry on top of OpenStack, and then Cloud Foundry orchestrating containers on top of that. Um, all of that, I think, makes sense and will come together very beautifully. Until one day we realize it's turtles all the way down. Uh, yes, indeed. So um, we've we've been surprised at just how far people have taken Juju in terms of uh, that inception view of the world, you know. But it just turns out to be a useful tool for gluing complicated scale-out things together. If you look at all of the interesting applications together today, I think they're a phase change from what was the case 10 years ago. Now, 10 years ago, you know, interesting applications came out, and you could sit on a single machine and, and explore them. You could, You could play with them, you could dig into them, you could learn about them, you could exercise them on a single machine. Today, all of the interesting applications appear to me to be distributed, right? They only really shine 
when you put them across a bunch of machines and you connect them to a bunch of other things, right? We've, we've kind of gone through a phase change from sort of single cellular life to multicellular life. Right, the push and towards I, microservices. Right, and I don't know that many people have really appreciated what a profound change that is from an operational point of view. Uh, imagine that you're a, a mid-sized financial institution and your CIO knocks on your door and says, uh, guys, I'd like us to do a bunch of work around machine learning. Now that's a really important topic. It's bubbling up. There's tons of research being done about it. Google and many others are, are throwing a huge amount of resources at it. There's interesting open source tools and technologies and proprietary tools and technologies to let corporations get into machine learning. But it's a bear. You, you have to allocate you know, large numbers of machines. You've got to, you've got to deploy lots of services that you've never seen before. Um, and you have to integrate them with you know, data sources and the various things that you want to, to send your, your machine learning insights to. That's a very hard process. And if, if you think about it, most organizations have to, have to spend some period of time evaluating their options. So take a hard process and multiply it several times out. And, and what you see is a huge skills gap for the average institution. To get into the modern world of OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and Hadoop and machine learning and so on, they have to figure out how they're going to go and acquire large numbers of skills that are, are very rare. And that's not going to work. So one of two things will happen. Either people will only consume these things as a service. In other words, they'll go to Google and get machine learning from Google, or they'll go to Amazon and get machine learning or Hadoop from, from Amazon. Or we'll make it possible for people to spin up those kinds of services um, very, very easily without ever having to get down into the dirty details and read the, you know, the books on what all of the parts are doing. And so that's, that's what I think is really exciting about Juju. For a mid-sized organization, it gives them the ability to spin up some of these really rich, really complicated services without taking... Uh, many months to do so. So that means they can evaluate options much faster. They can spin them up, put them into production much faster. They can put them into production on any different substrate. They can do it on clouds, they can do it on vert, they can do it on bare metal. And once they've chosen something and put it into production, they can scale it much more easily. Because they don't have to go and create all the chef and puppet and so on from scratch, which means they can reuse the charms that somebody else has prepared. Uh, if they want to, they can branch them, fork them. It's open source. But typically, people can just reuse the part as a working part as if it was SaaS. But it's internal to them on their infrastructure. So that's what I think is so exciting. You know, As we enter this era of rich, complicated services with a real skills gap around them, the ability to do that kind of orchestration very, very easily at scale, uh, mixing and matching parts, uh, I think is, is, is pretty valuable. And that's why... The Windows guys have been keen to get it on Windows, and now you know other Linux platforms have got it as well. I share your enthusiasm for this vision, and I find that companies not only have a technology and skills gap, but organizations need to adapt patterns of interaction and communication as well. Absolutely. If, so, you, if, you, if you look inside a, an institution today, a larger institution, they will often have taken incompatible choices internally. So you'll have one crowd that have started automating stuff with Chef and another crowd that have started automating stuff with Puppet. And sooner or later, those two parts meet. And someone wants to do a project, and, and the perfect part internally 
you know, it needs two halves, and the one half is perfectly automated already in Chef, and the other is perfectly automated already in Puppet, and they can't glue those together. By taking that Chef and Puppet and putting it into Charms, now they can glue those two halves together, because by coming up a layer and encapsulating the underlying uh, configuration management, we let people glue uh, automation together that uses totally different tools. So you could have one charm that uses Docker and uh, and Chef, and another charm that uses you know that's on Windows, and those two charms can be glued together you know in a way that they're blissfully unaware of the the choices that the other charm guys made. Tell me, Mark, when did you start looking at OpenStack and regarding it as something serious that you should pay attention to? Well, we were briefed by the founding groups at the start, and we invited them to our subsequent developer summit, our Ubuntu developer summit. At the time, we had a default cloud infrastructure, which was Amazon compatible and open source. The OpenStack guys came along and made a really compelling pitch, um, even though you know they didn't really have any adoption at the time. It was clear to us that the approach they were taking and the values that they had set for the project were the right values to form a center of gravity for many different vendors or, you know, around open cloud. And so we switched in the subsequent release of Ubuntu to OpenStack very, very early. And I think that really surprised a lot of people. But we thought that the, the crew that had, had founded OpenStack was doing exactly the right uh, thing. Uh, so then we were on the hook and we became part of the project. We contributed, I think, a fair amount of thinking around a distributed open source project leadership and governance and, and operating practices. And then we shifted gears to focus very much on supporting OpenStack in production. Now that OpenStack has become that center of gravity for every vendor, I think there's a temptation to climb in and, and try to stake out a, a piece of OpenStack that, that a vendor controls. But we see those battles as being very destructive, destructive to the, to the ultimate goal, which is to get a clean, scalable, reliable uh, cloud infrastructure, you know, openly available to everybody. Uh, so our focus very much is to be a supporting platform for OpenStack. We think, you know, a lot of the mystique around OpenStack will disappear, evaporate over the next year or two as more people get their hands on it, as more people find that they can actually just spin it up and orchestrate it with something like Juju. Once you've done it 10 times in 10 different environments on two different architectures, it loses its mystique. It's just Linux at scale, and you have the ability to mold it like you know putty. So you know that's where we focused, making it really easy for people to get, making it really reliable for people to run at scale, making it really economically uh, a viable option against the sort of looming presence of the public clouds. That's where our focus is at the moment. And then, of course, the application layer above it. Are you personally yourself still involved on the technical mailing list of your Not internal efforts? Uh, not for OpenStack, but I, but I am involved for our internal cloud mailing list. I have the great privilege of, of speaking in, in some detail with the leaders of companies that are adopting OpenStack. So I can convey to the team, you know, from a prioritization point of view, what the market um, is really looking for, uh, reading between the lines, you know, from what those folks say about what they're looking for and so shaping our efforts in that way. And I'm also a champion of OpenStack in public forums. You know, I, I think it's very important that there is a consensus common cloud infrastructure for people who want to build a cloud quickly. And so 
it's in everybody's interests to agree that that is OpenStack, and I, I play you know the role that I can to to pass that message on. So you're the self-appointed benevolent dictator for life of the Ubuntu ecosystem. Do you think such a role needs to be filled for the OpenStack ecosystem in a singular personality, or is there a leadership position that can be taken effectively by a group? I think the two perspectives on there. There's the wishful thinking perspective, which says, "Ah, oh, gee, if if only." We had, but you know, in, in in a very real sense, you know, we have to work with starting from where we are right now. The, the one analogy that I think is a broken analogy is to is to say that the governance of OpenStack is mirrored on the or, or modeled on the governance of Linux. Um, that's absolutely not the case. You know, Linux I think had the great benefit of spending many years uh, in the desert, as it were. Uh, forming uh, a fairly ragtag, but nonetheless tough, independent, um, and and committed group of people who had personal motivations for what they were doing. Uh, and so, when you look at the, the leadership of Linux, you know you have Linus. He's untouchable. He's in a position of complete independence. His, uh, you know, he's essentially his independence is enshrined in the form of a foundation which employs him but doesn't tell him what to do. And around him, you know, he chooses his lieutenants. Right? There's no voting. Um, there's no politics. You know, it's a question of meritocratic appointment, undemocratic, and sometimes, you know, happily offensive as the language may be. It works. It works really well. Uh, OpenStack is not like that at all. OpenStack very, very quickly became a, a sort of a chalice, you know, which had to hold all of the ambitions of all of the vendors who, you know, believe that they need to be aligning their products with cloud um, and, and cloud for the private enterprise market. Um, and so it's just a very different beast from a, from a governance and leadership point of view. I, I don't think there's any point in wishing that OpenStack was different than it is. I think you know, we have to make it work. The single change that I think is, is a credible change that should be given due consideration um, is the movement of key leadership roles into the foundation itself. In the same way that Linus is employed by the foundation and therefore genuinely not subject to the uh, whims of, 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 of employers, um, I, th I think we need that for a few key roles in OpenStack. Uh, and that would be a big change, but I think it might help break some of the vendor deadlock that we see uh, around you know, key areas of importance. Uh, regardless, I think OpenStack will, will thrive. I don't, I don't think this is a fatal flaw by any means. But I do think you know, it's worth pondering um, how to improve flows of decision-making um, and how to, you know, how to address some of the complicated issues. It doesn't help if people refuse to acknowledge that there might be some issues. You know, there is a, a, a tendency in open source to paper over the cracks, to pretend that everything's hunky-dory because we believe in the mission and because we believe in our inevitable success uh, it can be tempting to say you know everything's just fine uh, and I don't think that's very constructive I think it is helpful to say look we are we, we are experiencing challenges we aren't making fast enough progress um, maybe some of the, the choices that we've made need to be revisited I don't think that's unhealthy at all and um, we'll see how the board handles those conversations in the in the, in the coming months what kinds of leadership roles need to be brought into the fold as opposed to sitting outside? 
the, the first thing I would say is that I, I think the foundation's been very wise in controlling their spending rate because the bubble of enthusiasm around OpenStack right now, the willingness of vendors to pay to be part of it, um, is probably at a peak right now. Um, uh, OpenStack will continue to go from strength to strength, but just as you've seen with other open source projects, once people understand them and so on, and once people understand how to participate and so on, their, 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 their blank check disappears, right, and they become much more tactical in where they invest and, and why. So I think the foundation has been wise to, to limit its staff and, and, and stay small and stay focused. That said, I think there are a couple of key technical roles that would be better staffed inside the foundation than, than um, sort of voted for uh, in the current mechanisms. I think part of that is a recognition that you know, we should take a fairly narrow view of what OpenStack itself is. Uh, to me, OpenStack is uh, Nova, Neutron, uh, and Cinder. In other words, a very tight collection of resource management capabilities with some additional glue around them for ad identity and security and other bits and pieces. If you see it that way, then you really only need to bring a very few key roles in-house, as it were, to essentially have made the core of OpenStack really truly independent, vendor independent. You don't need to go to all of the sort of new projects that are springing up, PASs and databases as a service type things. Uh, those, I think, will be a healthy ecosystem. Vendors will play a strong role there. That's all fine. But in the, in the real core, I think it's important for us to consider having some strong independent technical leadership. And I think we might get better throughput of patches, policies, reviews, decisions uh, if we had that. Who would you put in that chair? Well, there's the tricky part. You know, in, in, in the Linux case, uh, Linus just does it because of the position he was able to establish, because Linux walked in the desert for so many years. You know, his, his ability to do that is, is perfect. We would have to have a process whereby the foundation made some appointments. There is no shortage of governance of the foundation. You know, as an institution, it's, it's very long on governance. It's shorter on leadership. But at the same time, I think... It's not, a, it's not an intractable process to just sit down and say, right, these are the roles we want to appoint. Let's have a process, which lots of people will have visibility on, to appoint those roles. And you get excellent candidates, and I'm sure they make great choices. Anyway, that's as far as I'm willing to go on the considerations for OpenStack. Broadly speaking, it's a phenomenal community, phenomenal project. I don't see anything derailing it um, from assuming its position as the default common open cloud platform. Sure, I'll be happy to help you write the job description for an OpenStack Moses. <laughs> well, as I think we can be a little more specific than that. Uh, we're uh, we're looking for a you know a networking Moses, a storage Moses, and a and a compute Moses. I think, and, uh, hopefully, they will get on very well. I can tell you that uh, the Israeli uh, OpenStack community is very happy that, like Moses's journey, your own treks have led you finally to visit Israel. Um, although you actually came and Moses didn't make it. Will we be seeing you at future uh, OpenStack Israel events? Well, I like the culture and I like the, uh, the, the startup vibe. Um, so there's, there are lots of reasons for me to, uh, to circle by. Um, let's see how, how the community shapes up and what events you put on the calendar. We'll send you an invitation. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining okay. us on the podcast today.
It was a pleasure to chat. Thanks for the questions and uh, thanks for the role that you play in uh, catalyzing people's enthusiasm for OpenStack in, uh, in that, that region. Thank you, Mark. All the best.